While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no guest room available for them. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news that will cause great joy for all the people. Today, in the town of David, a saviour has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favour rests. Thanks, John. Hi, everybody. Merry Christmas. Um, I can't see uh, all the screens on my screen at the moment, so I'm not sure who is or isn't with us this morning. But um, uh, Eric, I think I saw uh, Eric join uh, earlier. So to our our Dutch friends, uh, Froelike Kerstfeus. I can't see if Kieran's here. Um, But Kieran, if you are here, and to my father, who might listen to this later, Buon Natale. Uh, Tom, if you're with us, Frohliche Weihnachten, to my Afrikaans friends, Christian de Kersvius, and last but not least, to my dear Zulu brother, who will be listening later, Jabulela Ukisimusi. Well, uh, lots of ways to say it, and indeed in every language it should be said, happy, happy Christmas. And uh, in every place, of course, it should be celebrated. And I'm sure there are as many Christmas celebration traditions as there are languages. Christmas time here in England is cold and certainly chilly here in my shed this morning. Um, and so I'm sure many of, uh, many of your traditions involve doing something warm and cozy indoors. In South Africa, Christmas, of course, is early summer, so it'll be warming up and most people will braai on Christmas Day. If you don't know what a braai is, just wait for heaven, you'll soon find out. Different, uh, different Christmas traditions in different parts of the world, different traditions in different families and different traditions from one generation to the next. Even in my own family, we've developed some traditions that were different to those of my parents. We tend to do certain things every Christmas, certain meals we tend to prepare. One of my children's favorite things is, a, is an Italian dessert called a bombe. It's a kind of an ice cream cake sort of thing, but better than just what ice cream cake sounds like. Uh, We'll be having one later today, even though it really is a warm weather sort of thing, uh, not suited to minus two or whatever it is at the moment. I'm sure your family has Christmas, Christmas traditions too. And these can be good and lovely in all their many, many different forms. But what we've been doing the past few weeks, though, is to peel back the layers of some of those traditions and try to see Christmas through the eyes of some of some who were there that very first Christmas, those who experienced it fresh. And one of the ways Luke does that for us is to help us see Christmas in four songs. Mary's song uh, that John preached for us a couple of weeks ago, Zechariah's song that um, Bernard preached for us uh, this past Sunday, the angel's song and um, Simeon's song. Uh, This morning we're going to look at the angel's song and the events around it. 
before we do, though, I want to read for you the opening verses of Luke's gospel. Just the first four verses. These set the scene for the whole gospel. And without them, I don't think we can really hear the story of the angel's song or any of Luke's gospel the way he means us to. So let me read these opening verses for us. Uh, If you have your Bibles, please do follow with me. Um, Luke chapter 1 and from verse 1. Many have undertaken to draw up an account of the things that have been fulfilled among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who were the first, sorry, those who from the first were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. With this in mind, Since I myself have carefully investigated everything from the beginning, I too decided to write an orderly account for you, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the certainty of the things you have been taught. So notice in verses 1 and 2, Luke says his gospel is about some things that were handed down by the eyewitnesses and servants of the word. Well, what is it that was handed down? It was an account, Luke says, but not just an account. It was an account of the things that have been fulfilled, or your translation might say accomplished among us. In other words, some things happened, and those things that happened were in some sense a fulfillment of a promise or an accomplishment of a purpose. In other words, Luke wants you and me to know the historical facts of what happened and what those facts mean. Luke wants you and me and the whole world, in fact, to know what actually happened, historically known facts, and what it means that those things happened. And there's more. Notice in verse 4 of chapter 2. Apologies, verse 4 of chapter 1. Luke doesn't say, I'm writing this account of the life of Jesus so that you will know these things. No, he says, I want you to know the certainty of these things. I'm writing this account for you, Theophilus, so that, so here comes the purpose statement, the whole reason Luke writes this account, so that you may know the certainty the certainty of the things you have been taught. Well, the word translated certainty there means securely locked up. It's actually used elsewhere in the New Testament to refer to a jail being securely locked. So the idea here in Luke 1 um, is that you would know more than just the things that you know. You'd know something about the nature of those things that you know. You'd know the, the locked in, secure, immovable, non-negotiable certainty of those things, that you would know the absolute sureness of the things you have been taught, such that you would stake your eternal life on them. One writer describes two kinds of knowing. Uh, He says, some people know truth the way they know clouds. Their view of God, uh, of his holiness, of sin, of Jesus, of heaven, of hell, of Christian doctrine, of, of right and wrong, are like clouds, ready to float away and be replaced by another, another cloud, a different idea, at the slightest wind. They have no anchor. They're unfixed. But Luke wants you to know in the way you know a mountain, 
it is there and it's not going anywhere anytime. This is the kind of knowing that has sustained the church through 2000 years of cultural storms and persecution. It's the kind of knowing that has sustained believers through terrible individual persecution, even martyrdom. It's the kind of knowing that you, note you, will need to sustain hope and faith and joy in the face of rapidly increasing cultural hostility towards Christians and towards the church in this country. It's the kind of knowing that empowers you to persevere. We've been looking at a, a series of songs that Luke presents in his gospel. Mary, uh, Mary's first, Zechariah's this morning, the angels, and next week, or sorry, not, not next week, the Sunday, Simeon's. So why does Luke tell us about the angel? What does he want you to know, to know with certainty, to know like you know the mountains? Well, I'm going to briefly highlight just two things for us from this passage this morning. Two things that Luke wants you to know and some implications of each of them. First, where you rank on the scale of worldly importance matters nothing to God. Second, your eternal peace with God depends entirely on your response to the baby born in Bethlehem. First, where you rank on the scale of worldly importance matters nothing to God. Well, look with me in your Bibles at Luke chapter 2 and verses 8 and 9. There were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, near Bethlehem, that is, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them. To them. An angel of the Lord appeared to a group of nameless shepherds on the hills outside Bethlehem. Not to Caesar. Caesar Augustus, who a few verses earlier, we are told, issued a decree that a census be taken of the entire Roman world. Not to Caesar did the angels come. Think of it. Caesar was the most powerful man in the world at that time. In fact, Caesar Augustus, arguably one of the most powerful rulers that has ever lived in the history of the world. Certainly in terms of political, uh, territorial, economic and military dominance. Caesar, who ruled every institution of worldly power at the time, orders the whole Roman world. Do you see that in verse 1? He commands by decree that the whole Roman world be registered by census. What an incredible assertion of power. I can command where you go, Caesar is saying, and when you go there. And I can command you to put your name on a list so that I can tax you. I own you. I own the whole world. That's what Caesar is saying. But in Luke's gospel, all Caesar is there for is to play his very small part in the unfolding of God's plan that saw Joseph and Mary travel to Bethlehem at just the right moment for Jesus to be born there in fulfillment of centuries of prophecy. Christmas turns the whole world upside down. Take a, take a few minutes after lunch 
or perhaps after your snooze after lunch <laughs> this afternoon, uh, to look again at Mary's song in chapter one. The poor and the hungry will be filled. The rich and the proud will be emptied. The humble will be lifted up. The rulers of this world will be brought down from their thrones. And Mary's song is being fulfilled, at least in part, already here in chapter 2. Look at verse 9. I want you to see this with your own eyes in the text. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them. The glory of God. His mighty presence. His glory had departed from Israel at the time of the exile, and it had not been seen for 600 years. But this night, not in a palace in Rome, but on a hill near Bethlehem, not to the most powerful man on earth, but to a band of nameless shepherds, the glory of the Lord returns. Where you rank on the scale of worldly importance matters nothing to God. But why do you need to know the certainty of this? Well, I'm sure there are more, but three reasons come to mind for me. First, because cultural hostility towards Christians in this country is increasing fast and is going to intensify. For the sake of time this morning, I'm not going to elaborate on that, but it is undeniably true. My Christian brothers and sisters, you need to know, like you know the mountains, that the God of heaven pays zero attention to any measure of worldly power. Caesar will have his day. At least that's how it will appear to all the world. But 2,000 years later, we don't remember Caesar and his census in our carols, do we? But we do still sing while shepherds watched their flocks by night, all seated on the ground. The angel of the Lord came down and glory shone around. As cultural hostility increases, and it will, remember, Christian, though it appears that great powers are calling the shots, just as it looked that way when Caesar ordered the census. In the final reckoning, there is only one throne from which all the world is ruled. The appearances of worldly importance and power matter nothing to God. He alone is the only true God. He alone is all-powerful. And he moves even Caesars and empires to bring his will to pass. Second reason why you need to know that where you rank on the scale of worldly importance matters nothing to God. Don't waste your life trying to be a Caesar, <laughs> gathering to yourself power, wealth, control, influence, a great name. Don't waste your life. There is only one kingdom that matters, <laughs> and it's not yours and it's not mine. Third reason why you need to know that where you rank on the scale of worldly importance matters nothing to God. Jesus came to rescue the nobodies of the world. You don't have to be important in the world's eyes to get Jesus' attention. 
the shepherds on the hillside that night certainly knew they were nobodies. In fact, not only were they nobodies, in terms of Jewish law, they were ceremonially unclean. They didn't wash the right way, so they were excluded from the religious life of Israel. In fact, historical records tell us that shepherds had few legal rights and were social outcasts. The rabbis of the time ruled that it was forbidden to buy wool uh, or milk or meat from a shepherd on the assumption that it would be stolen property. One passage in the Mishnah goes so far even as to say that no one should feel obliged to rescue a shepherd who has fallen into a pit. So despised were they. These shepherds knew they were despised. They knew they were nobodies. But Jesus came for them. They became witnesses to his birth. God took the initiative to catch them up into the greatest night in the history of the world. God made them part of his story. And he has been doing the same for nobodies ever since. Are you a nobody? Luke wants you to know, like you know the mountains, that however unimportant you may be, however low you may rank on the scale of worldly importance, Christmas means that Jesus came for you. All right, I said I was going to highlight just two things this morning. Two things Luke wants you to know and, in, and some implications of each. The first was what we've just covered. Where you rank on the scale of worldly importance matters nothing to God. And second, that your eternal peace with God depends entirely on your response to the baby born in Bethlehem. Because he was no ordinary baby. He was God in the flesh. Uh, I have two favorite Christmas carols. One of them is Hark the Herald Angels Sing. Uh, I'm sure you know it well. So you'll know the verse that goes, Christ by highest heaven adored, Christ the everlasting Lord. Late in time behold him come, offspring of the virgin's womb, veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Do you remember what the angel announced to the shepherds? Today in the town of David, a savior has been born to you. He is the Messiah, the Lord. He is the savior, the angel said. The Messiah, your translation might say the Christ. He is the Lord. Back in chapter one, um, just before Mary sang her song, when the, when the angel appeared to her, um, he said, just trying to find my place, from verse 31, behold, you will conceive in your womb and bear a son. You will call his name Jesus. He will be great and will be called the son of the most high. And the Lord God will give to him the throne of his father, David. And he will reign over the house of Jacob forever. And of his kingdom, there will be no end. What kind of a Lord is he? He's the Lord who reigns over the eternal kingdom. 
by picking up these promises and prophecies of the throne of David, what the angel is saying is this baby who is coming is not just coming to be king of Israel. He is Lord of all, Lord of all creation, Lord of forever. He is the Lord, the angel said. And then from verse 13 in chapter 2, suddenly a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Glory to God in the highest heaven and on earth, peace to who? Peace to those on whom his favor rests not peace to all mankind. The coming of the Lord of eternity is not good news to those who defy him. Peace to those on whom his favor rests. And upon whom does the favor of God rest? Upon those and upon only those who love his son. Psalm 2 from verse 10 reads, Now be wise, O kings, be warned, O rulers of the earth. Serve the Lord with fear and celebrate his rule, the rule of Jesus, with trembling. Kiss the son, lest he be angry, and your defiance lead to your destruction. His wrath is quickly kindled. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. Blessed are all who take refuge in him. For he came to offer refuge through his own body and blood, given on the cross just a few miles from his birthplace, about 33 years later. Glory to God in the highest heaven, the angels sang. And on earth, peace to those on whom his favor rests. Peace to those who love his son and who celebrate his coming and who take refuge in his sacrifice on the cross, and who cherish his forever reign. Peace to those who recognize who this Bethlehem baby is, and who respond rightly to him. The baby of Bethlehem is the Savior. He is the Christ, the Anointed One of God Most High. He is the Lord. Veiled in flesh the Godhead see. Hail the incarnate deity. What are the big truths Luke wants you to know with certainty? To know like you know the mountains this morning. Where you rank on the scale of worldly importance matters nothing to God. Your eternal peace with God depends entirely on your response to the baby born in Bethlehem. Do you, veiled in flesh, the Godhead see? Does your heart shout, hail the incarnate deity? If so, then peace with God and wrapped up with that peace, everlasting life is yours as a gift from the God of heaven this morning. Won't you bow your hearts with me as I pray? O God of heaven and earth, we give you thanks for you so loved the world that you gave your only begotten Son. 
that all who believe in him, who look to him and love him and cherish him and rejoice in his coming and in his reign, would have eternal and everlasting life. Peace with you. How great a salvation. How great a gift. Open our hearts to see in him the incarnate deity and to and to shout with all our hearts hail to the lord amen